Hello and welcome. My name's Kat Ellinger. I'm an author, editor and critic. And this is Renato Porcelli's Il Mostro dell'Opera, or The Monster of the Opera, which was filmed under the more, I guess, relevant title of The Vampire of the Opera. A film plagued with production difficulties, with budget difficulties. So it was actually shot in 1961 but not released until 1964 and I'll talk about this a little bit later on in the commentary but Italian Gothic in just three short years had really moved away from the short-lived, very short-lived vampire cycle to other things. I do want to open this up though by stating that I think Polselli was a true visionary and I know not everybody is going to agree with me on this. You know, he he made some trashy films. He made some incredibly brilliantly trashy films. He also did hardcore porn by the end of his career. But there was just something about him, something odd, something about his rhythm and his vision that was much more perverse than the mainstream Italian Gothic of the time. And I think like Jess Franco, Jose Larraz and, and Jean Roland, to a certain degree, he was so much on his own trip. He just danced to the beat of his own drum. Like those, but unlike those aforementioned filmmakers, he's remained relatively obscure from mainstream genre. Like we see much more in the way of home video releases for Laraz, for Franco, for Roland in the last decade or so. But Polselli, who made a lot of films in all kinds of different genres, the bulk of his work has remained very difficult to see, even his horror films. So, for example, his film Mania from 1974. That, for the longest time, was thought completely lost. All you could see was this, um, this trailer that did the rounds on bootleg websites until about four or five years ago, a print of it turns up on YouTube, which was just a total revelation. So I think his, his work has suffered from sheer lack of availability. And that makes this restoration from Severin just vital because we need to see more from Polselli. He was really important in that early Gothic. And like I said, his work was just so different, just so different. Also, Polselli within the Italian vampire, he made the first official Italian vampire film. In 1959, we saw Uncle Was a Vampire, which had a cameo or a small role for Christopher Lee and was, was totally influenced by Hammer. But that was a comedy. It was a horror comedy. And, you know, the Dracula figure is gone half the way through. And, of course, we also had E. Vampiri in 1957 by Barva and Freda, which was technically the first sort of Italian Gothic, but it was also Evampiri, it was also connected to the vampire. So what I mean here is, it, not that it's conventional, but this is a, a direct influence from, from Hammer's Dracula from 1958. I should say the first sort of masculine vampire, the, the, the first 
traditional masculine vampire within Italian Gothic. Pulsades, the vampire and the ballerina though, which came out on the 23rd of May 1960, that was the breakthrough film. I just want to point out the camera work because we've seen that upside down shot and I'll come back to camera work later on behind the glass. There, I mean this is what I mean about Pulsades work. There is an aspect to it that you know, it's far more inventive and far more out there. And even though he's dealing with this very low budget, there's this organic feeling in here, this almost jazz timing that goes against the formal Gothic of the period that was also very stagey. It was very stagey. If you look at someone like Fisher, Terence Fisher from Hammer, who I absolutely adore, but his camera work was very static. He had this very specific formality to his work. You've also got the Jungian elements in here, which is very rare for horror of this period. And the only other person I can think of doing this, working specifically in the realm of someone like Carl Jung, who was all about dreams and shared consciousness and mysticism and magic, was Roger Vadim with Blood and Roses, although that one still has a very Freudian overtone. And the Freudian gothic and the Freudian horror really dominated the 1960s. If you look at one of the most important commercially successful films of that era and also one of the most influential, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, that's all about the Freudians. You get all this psychosexual in it. Whereas I find that Polselli tends to be more Jungian in that respect. It's more about this surrealism and these dreams and, and just look at the camera work here and this energy. It's just so counter to this idea of the formal Gothic. And so to me, he's always stood out. I just, uh, I've always felt like I'm in the presence of something else, this othered energy. And it's more perverse and it's more on the fringe. And therefore, and this is a matter of personal taste. I'm not expecting everyone to agree with me. But to me, there's something special about that and something very, very transgressive about that as well. He's working with Ugo Brunelli, who was already an experienced cinematographer by this point. And I'm pretty sure this was the first time they worked together, but he would then continue working with Polselli, including on some of his horror films, so Mania, The Reincarnation of Isabel, Delirio Caldo, which I absolutely love. And his last film, not Polselli, was Beast in Heat, so <laughs> a slight thing. But we see now that this has all been this dream, this bizarre dream. And we wake up and we are in the present time. And I just find this absolutely, absolutely fascinating. I will say not everyone does agree with me. I think Roberto Curti, who I adore, where would we be without Roberto Curti and his incredible research? But he finds Polselli's method and camera work in this film specifically, or at least he mentions this in his first volume of Italian Gothic Horror, is uh, he calls it irritatingly pretentious, <laughs> which is like... But I get it. I totally get it. I totally get why that could, it could register this way with somebody who prefers the more formal, the more formal. When we look at Pulselli, dance and music are very much at the core 
of what he does. So you've got that in Vampire and the Ballerina. Obviously, though, this is also where you had Playgirls and the Vampire, which came out the same year as Polselli's film by Piero Rignoli. And that one came out 28th of November 1960. And there is a lot of uh, parallel. I won't spoil that one if you haven't seen it, but there's quite a few parallels between the base story in this and the base story in that. And, of course, Polselli, though, was the first one to link dance, this idea of dance. But dance does come up in in a few of Polselli's horror films. This idea of, of dance and also jazz, these more avant-garde aspects. And, and this one, though, it's all over this film. All over this film. It's all about artifice. It's all about this avant-garde dance. It almost registers as... A musical in that respect. I saw somebody in a review once compare this to Bollywood because you have these these dance interludes. And it is just so different, again, to this formal model. Hammer really pioneered in the Gothic and then we saw Roger Corman in the States and the Italians had their own form of Gothic, obviously, and it was never, it was never like par for the course. It was always different. And there's that thing that... But the Italians picked up on what was commercially viable or possibly lucrative for the export market. And therefore, Gothic was in vogue, and so everything was about Gothic. But even when they were working within these cycles, or filones, they call them, that were heavily indebted to things that other territories were doing, especially the USA and Britain, they never did it standard. I love the way that this guy just dances around while he's talking, for example. <laughs> it's not having a, a, a normal conversation. He is moving around, although he's finally tired himself out now, and I'm not surprised all that swinging off the banisters. You also have this bizarre romantic philosophical element, and it works because a lot of the time you have these creative, these actor types, and they're reading from scripts, but, you know, the way that they talk, because everything is about performance. And the other interesting thing about this, about the setting, and it's something that absolutely fascinates me, specifically within the mould of the vampire film. It's something that I've written about a lot in my own work with respect to actually the lesbian vampire cycle. And that's the fact that by the time you got to the 70s, it was like somebody picked up a rock and realised that vampires were immortal and therefore they could exist in any time or any place. And some of the films were doing this deliberately and consciously, so Count Yorga in that respect was a massive breakthrough film. You had AIP really trying to revitalise and modernise the vampire genre. But throughout the 1970s, especially within the canon of the lesbian vampire, and that's usually been my focus within my own work, there was this push, and some of it was budget-related. So take a film like Daughters of Darkness, for example. Kumul originally wanted to do that as a traditional Countess Bathory with all these extras and these period costumes, and the budget just wasn't there, so it gets moved to the present time. So a lot of it was concerned with budget. But then the vampire starts to really transform within this decade and it becomes really fascinating until we get to the 80s and we get to films where 
vampires then become akin to rock stars in films like The Hunger, The Lost Boys, Near Dark, things like that. So the 70s really is this turning point. But if we go back to the 60s, most vampire films, especially those ones coming out via Hammer, are still very much in Bram Stoker's world. And the thing, I think, when we think about Gothic as a cinematic trope or a cinematic framework, there's always this idea that it is Victorian set, it is full of Victoriana, it is looking into the past, but we forget that when Bram Stoker was writing Dracula, when Sheridan Le Fanu was writing Carmilla, these were contemporary stories. And so the Gothic is applicable to all eras, to all times. It is just so fluid and you can apply it to so many different settings. And we really see that by the end of the 60s when we get to Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby, two really, really breakthrough films there as well. But not many people are using it at this point. And Vadim is one of them. He brings Carmela to present time, but he mixes in these period elements. Paul Selly is another with the vampire and the playgirls as well. And again, it's largely dictated by budget, but it gives us this interesting contemporary setting, this idea of the traditional monster coming into the modern setting. I adore, I, I just challenge anyone to not think this is so special. We're nearly 15 minutes in and we get something that is akin to Melier. These dancing skeletons and the choreography in here. There's so much choreography in this film. It's very, very choreographed. And like I said, it was kind of part of what Paul said he did. And even as late as Reincarnation of Isabel, which is in the 70s, he's still got, he's putting things like slapstick in there. He's putting things like random ballet dances in there. But he really goes all on out with this. And it is absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And of course, the setup is we've had two bait and switches so far. Is that it's the cast playing a trick on their director. Which again, to me, seems it seems to, to foreshadow what we'd see in the, the slasher. This uh, comedy interlude or this fake setup. But it is absolutely beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And the ambiance here, again, it sort of evokes a much earlier period of surrealism. And I know that for his previous vampire film, Pulselli was very much influenced by Carl Dreyer in certain respects. When we look at Dreyer's take on Carmina, on the family's Carmina, it is set firmly within this Jungian surrealist world and so even though we have this contemporary setting and we have aspects that are very much in line with the quote-unquote vampire convention we also have this experimentation this surrealism and this looking back to a much earlier period within the vampire we're not just looking back to hammer we're not just in the, the field that Hammer were doing. And I just love Paul Selly for that. Writers Pete Toombs and Cathil Tohill, and I'm forever quoting this, but they were some of the first to really champion the works of people like Paul Selly and Laras and Jean Roland and Jess Franco in their 
groundbreaking. And I keep saying groundbreaking, but there is a lot of groundbreaking stuff here. But their groundbreaking book, Immoral Tales, in the early 90s, because they talked about how Eurocult really functioned on what they termed dream logic, opposed to the Hitchcockian, English-speaking territory, very tight sort of logical frameworks where everything has to make sense. What we see in European filmmakers, especially those coming out of Italy, but also France, and France were nowhere near, nowhere near as prolific as the Italians. But this is certainly something that comes into play in all those filmmakers that I've mentioned, is they're working much more in the realm of the fantastique. They are working much more in this tradition of decadence as well, which comes from the fin de siècle, which was strongly then linked to things like surrealism and later Dadaism. And it was all about this stream of consciousness, this stream of consciousness, this dreamlike logic. And Toehill and Tombs were the first to really champion that, you know, nearly three decades ago now, which seems remarkable to me. I think nowadays, though, because we're now within the era of very sensory-based, surrealist, what they call elevated horror, which I would argue so-called elevated horror has always existed but i think audiences are much more primed for this now because we're much more used to it we're much more used to these very abstract narratives whereas back in the early 60s this was just insanity and on that note of elevated horror paul Selly said in a very very rare interview that's never been officially released anywhere. And just overall, Polselli has been this marginal force within Eurocult. There's very little written about him. There's very little available in terms of interviews. He wasn't somebody that people sought out, like, you know, the key names like Barber and Falci and Argento and so on and so forth. So... He kind of lurked about in the shadows. But he was asked in this interview, which was actually conducted by Pete Toombs, what do you think has been Italy's contribution to the Gothic? And his answer was this, that he felt that the Italians elevated it. And he didn't mean it in this superior way, or at least that's not how it comes across in the interview. But he added to that that he felt that what the Italians did was they embellished Gothic with much more in the way of imagination and you definitely see that working in Mostro dell'opera I definitely see that I love the way that he's now turned the theatre for example into something of a haunted house so we've got these wonderful labyrinth like corridors and these shadows and we've got old Achilles going up there and Julie is about to meet him and realise that she's already seen him. So it's this spirit of invention, this, this playful spirit, where the Italians would never, ever do anything straightforwardly. Like right off the bat, we're coming out with things like Ivan Piri, Black Sunday, and writers like Tolstoy and V are being credited. There's not really this straightforward mechanism at play. And when you bear in mind that Paul Selly was also a writer, he'd actually been writing what he called Jallo 
Jallo uh, stories for magazines at the at the time. He'd formerly been a scriptwriter. That's how he got his start in film. He wrote poetry. He was a philosophy student. And so he wasn't necessarily borrowing from any idea of commercial genre. When we look at the comparison to, say, Hammer, Hammer were very consciously doing their own twist on what Universal did before. And it was a really interesting twist. It was one that was full of class. It was one that was full of satire and all these wonderful things. They did amazing experiments like twisting the Frankenstein myth to make the doctor himself, the baron, the monster. But with the Italians, there was this embellishment, always this embellishment. And this was something that Paul Sally was happy to take credit for having a hand in. He was always playful like this within genre. And of course, he didn't always do horror. He did loads of other different types of films and he'd done a bunch of films up until this point. The way he tells it is he just accidentally walked into horror. It wasn't some thing that he had to do. It wasn't some sort of like dream that he had, I'm going to make a horror film. He just happened to be very good at it because of his uh, perverse sensibilities, I suppose. He was very well suited to the Gothic. And then later on, when it got to the Giallo, he was very well suited to that. And none of his work was formulaic. That said, though, and without giving any spoilers, this idea of reincarnation and this idea of the double, the double resurfaces time after time after time in Italian Gothic. I don't quite understand why they have this obsession with the Gothic double, but it is actually a convention within Gothic literature. And that might either be a literal double or it could be somebody who mimics somebody else. But it's all about this, I guess, this aspect of dualism and this clear split between good versus evil. And so some of the tropes that generally come up within the double, the more obvious ones are things like paintings. And we have the painting in here. Somebody looking like somebody else. So we have in, say, something like Black Sunday, this resurrection and, and Barbara Steele in a resurrection. The Playgirls and the Vampire has a similar storyline to this one. And when Paul Selly did the reincarnation of Isabel or Black Magic Rites is the, is the alternate title of that one in the 70s. That one is more about witchcraft and more about the occult. But again, it has this idea of a resurrection and somebody channeling the spirit of someone else and this idea of doubles and so on and so forth and people forced to live out these same fates. So I'm not going to say it was like a key theme in the work of Paul Selle. If he had a key theme, it was just weirdness, which is why I love the bones of him. That was his key theme. You, you never know where his films are going to go. And I just love him for that very reason. But he did use it again. He did use something similar again for reincarnation of Isabel later on. 
in 1973. With that one, he said it was to do with he wanted to explore this notion of like mass hysteria because he was very interested in the the psychological mechanisms which underpinned fear and so he talked in that interview that i just referenced about that how he wanted to focus on you know one person gets scared and then another person gets scared and it becomes this form of hysteria which to be honest it's a really fascinating theory but i never got that from the reincarnation of isabel i've always read that that film is literal is quite literal but it's interesting the the i guess the the approach that he had to horror he seemed to be totally on his own frequency somewhere along the line and there was also this kind of jazz timing to it that you also find in the work of Jess Franco although their as directors their style and i guess their ongoing obsessions were slightly different apart from they both had a proclivity for sadism but then i guess sadism overall is a unifying element within the the contours of eurocult gothic i mean hammer had their own form of sadism but the mainlanders they were always far more out there and i'm going to talk about that a little bit later on when we get to the bride scene you'll also notice well like compared to later eurocult so Paul said he was working with established people like Mickey Haggerty. In fact, he always claimed discovery of Haggerty. And Haggerty is in some interesting roles for Paul Selly, but he was already established in Italian Gothic. But, for example, Sandro's played by Marco Mariani. He, up until this point, had mainly been in war films and action films and peplum. And the woman who played... Julia, who's credited as Barbara Howard, she she was only ever in this film, as far as I can ascertain. So you didn't really have these established, I guess, genre people at this point. It was quite early on in the cycle. You also had Alberto Archetti as Achilles, and he again was like... You know, one of these stock actors. He was actually in Miller the Stone Women, though, as Conrad. He was in that. But there wasn't really... It took, like, a whole decade for Italy to develop a, a stable of, I guess, what would, what would you call them, like, genre-type actors. So it's really interesting when you look at the cast... You think, oh, what else were they in? And it's all just really obscure, well, to English speakers, like in the case of uh, Archetti, for example. He did a lot of classic cinema, and this was actually a Middle of Stone Women in 1960. And he did a couple of other films, but then he didn't work again from 1964 in film until he did actually a BBC play of the month in 1973. So this was like his last feature film. But you don't really get those recognisable faces outside of Barbara Steele. And then it starts to develop over time. You start to get these recognisable people in Italian horror. 
Well, you do find a few interesting people within the crew. So I've already mentioned the cinematographer, but the set decorator, and they've done, I mean, this was filmed on location, but they've done really well with all the little gruesome Gothic artifacts on this, was Francesco Cupini, who worked in various sort of art departments as an art director, as a set dresser, as a production designer, but he worked on films like Fellini's Juliet of the Spirits. He worked on Dario Argento's Inferno. I mean, he did all sorts of films. He also worked on the production side of one of my favourite Italian cult films, Femina Redans, and that one is very, very striking for its visual flair. There's also not many Italian gothics that can lay claim to having an on-set choreographer but this one did even though they had very little in the way of budget they had two choreographers Jana and Marissa Chiampagia working on there so you know it's like we haven't got much room for for sets or actors or whatever but we need these two choreographers and that is just Paul Selly one thing that he did say was, you know, even in what he called his most sordid films, and I presume he was talking about the hardcore that he did later on, which he had absolutely no qualms about. He's just like, yeah, I made hardcore. He, he was a jobbing director in that respect, and so he would take gigs to work. But he did say that he would have to find something about the film that he was interested in. Like, there'd have to be something that that interested him or he'd have to make it interesting. There'd have to be something that he could hone in on. And with this one, it was more to do with this, this dream element and this idea of a revenge story, which is really unique for a, I guess, for a vampire, for a vampire story. It's very, very unique. You don't see that line used at all, and it's like the twist. I do want to talk about that when it comes up later on, but I will talk about it just yet. He had been, the director had been working for Titanus and had got into arguments with them over some sort of script. And so Bruno Bolognesi, who was a producer, he said he'd come out of, uh, Paul Selly had come out of this office and he just had this almighty row over a script because he did like to take control. He did like to take control of things. And he bumps into this other producer in the hallway and he's like, come over the road. Like, we'll make the, do you want to do a horror film? And so that's how he made the vampire and the ballerina. And he also served Bolognese as a executive producer on A Quiet Place to Kill later on, the Jallo by Umberto Lenzi so it was interesting but he's like do you want to make a horror and so Paul Selly said he got kind of stuck with that just for one film though he wasn't like Barbara he was making loads of them he became the quote-unquote vampire man because he'd made a vampire film but he doesn't want to make it in the same vein so he had this idea of a girl being chased and this idea of the revenge and that is how it started. And to make it interesting to him, he has this uh, choreography, this dance, these elements of comedy, elements of comedy that might seem to pop up inappropriately are a stamp 
of Paul Selly within genre. He does like to do that. I don't know if he thought it was easing tension, but the but his comedy is often so irrelevant that it's like, whoa. Like when it comes up, it, it's like, what what is this? I enjoy that because it is so weird. But I can imagine for people that like everything to neatly slot together, it could be kind of annoying. Uh, in Reincarnation of Isabel, for example, there's like a bizarre slapstick uh, scene with a woman in a ballet tutu, if I remember. So he, he was irrelevant and he was whimsical in that way and he would put his own stamp on it. But to him, it was, a, it was also a job. He was like a journeyman. He would take whatever, whatever came up, whatever came his, his way. I guess being a journeyman means that Polselli, in a way, is never too attached to genre. Like, he's never too attached to genre, although you can't really say that there were cliches at this point because it was a bit of a wild frontier in terms of post-war horror film. It was pretty much this this new period of experimentation in Britain, in America, in Europe. You had lots of different types of horror films come out, much more than you'd seen in the earlier classic period. So it wasn't that, but this mixing in of aspects of the musical, for example, or I would be remiss not to mention the aspects of melodrama and romance and this very specifically over-the-top melodramatic romance that you see in this film if you think in terms of the more traditional bram stoker model of gothic this is a complete counterpoint i mean what is going on in this musical you've got people dressed up as maids you've got men dressed up as skeletons it is described as a ballet but it doesn't appear to be from any particular era You've got all different types of period costumes and styles come up within the musical numbers. And it really is a hodgepodge of, of stuff. I said Paul Selly didn't really have any sort of unifying theme in that way, apart from weirdness. But I guess that's part of it, the hodgepodge. This bringing together of things that you wouldn't typically see within the horror genre. Oh, I'll throw a little bit of music in there. I'll throw these over-the-top elaborate dance members, a bit of camp, uh, a bit of kitsch, a bit of melodrama. These are all things that you don't expect to see within the horror. Within the horror, even I think at this point when we're talking about establishing conventions, I guess what you expect to see is tension. You expect to see fear. And so if you took a film like this in these more traditional terms does it work as a horror not really but then to me horror doesn't necessarily have to be scary my attraction to horror is rarely to be scared actually there are very few i think this is the truth for many horror fans especially people that have seen thousands of horror films there are very few films that we will admit to actually authentically scaring us i think the reason that most of us are attracted to 
horror is more for this dark aesthetic, for the more imaginative elements, the more fantasy type elements. In terms of Euro cult, this is certainly true for me. It's an attraction to specifically these more surrealist elements as well. So if you take Paul Selly in those terms in a genre of outsiders who generally make films for outsiders, he is the outsider of the outsiders, which is quite remarkable. And he absolutely refuses to build tension in a more conventional way as well. So we have these mystery elements going on. We have the connection to Julia looking like this woman from the past. We have these dreams that come up, the sense of deja vu. We have elements of mystery within that. They are, again, unconventional elements, but they hang on, I guess, a more traditional framework. But then Paul Selly will deliberately undermine these by diffusing that tension with music, with silliness, to only then ramp it back up again in the next scene. So in terms of rhythm, this goes back to what I was saying about these more unconventional jazz rhythms. If we look at a more conventional horror film, it's supposed to have something like The Shining that, that does this is probably the best at doing this. Kubrick spends so much of that film building tension, building tension, building tension. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? So you're on the edge of your seat. Whereas Paul Selly's rhythm for this film, it goes in peaks and troughs. So you never quite know where you are within the film. You're like, what's going on here? I couldn't really find much about the film's reception at the, the time of its release. And like I said, it didn't have the release that it should have. It should have been released much earlier on in that decade. And by 64, Italian horrors basically moved on. We're talking about the year when Blood and Black Lace comes out. You know, it's starting to move on. It's moving into other things. The Gothic is still very dominant. But at this point, it's established itself as a certain type of Gothic. This very Baroque, very female-centric, very Sardian type of Gothic. Now you've got Paul Selly's bizarre little film coming out in the midst of that. Whereas had it came out earlier, I think it would have been taken as much more forerunning. What's interesting to me is this notion of the vampire though because like i said because hammer of dracula had been so successful for hammer and it had done really well in italy so first of all they do uncle is a vampire and they exploit christopher lee for that they use his name but it's really more of a, a typical italian comedy but then they start to look at their own quote-unquote gothic film and we got barva doing black sunday which is very female centric. And in the midst of that, we do get this handful of more male dominated vampires, this being one. Although there's a twist, there's a twist on that. It's not as straightforward as, as, it, as it first seems. But if we take these, let's say Bram Stoker model type male vampires, for want of a better term, if we take those within the context of the vampire film, within the context of Italy, 
As I've already touched on, Italy were, even though they're largely seen as ripping other countries off, which isn't always true, they're always on their own path, even when they are sort of sparked or inspired by other successful things from other countries, in this case Hammer, they don't go the predicted route, they do their own take on that. But Italian Gothic to me has always stood out because it has been very female-centric. When you, If you look at the British Gothic films at the time of this era, the 60s specifically, it changes when it gets into the, into the 70s, largely off the back of the vampire lovers. But it is very much in this same vein of the male sexual predator, the male vampire, the Christopher Lee type, or in terms of even Hammer's Frankenstein, it is the it's the male baron, the who is the monster himself, this sort of sociopathic mad professor. And it's very, very male. If we look at Italian Gothic though, it tends to be much more female centric. So there's a lot more emphasis on the chthonic feminine and again I don't know why this it turned out like this if I had to guess I would say it was because of Barbara Steele and how successful Barbara Steele was and the fact that she immediately became an icon for for Italian gothic and so that just really sort of inspired filmmakers to make much more in that vein but we're talking about more folkloric gothic or aspects of the occult or you know even very early adaptations of Carmilla which was also the basis for Hammer's The Vampire Lovers in 1964 Camillo Mastro Cinque did Crypt of the Vampire which also had Christopher Lee in, but starring in a very untypical role, as he often did when he went to Italy. Was He was always put in these strange and different roles compared to the stuff that he did for Hammer. So to have a quote-unquote male vampire film, we seem to have gone to Paris now in this dance. This is what I mean. I'm, I'm going to get out here and say this. Renato Porcelli was the Bob Fosse of gothic horror <laughs> because this is totally Fosse before Fosse's doing films as well. It's totally in the mould of Fosse. And people couldn't even deal with Fosse doing films at the end of the 60s. It's a sort of established musical theatre director. So, you know, whatever they thought of Renato Porcelli doing it, Jesus Christ, we don't really have much of that on record. But to come back to this idea of the male vampire within Italian film, outside of these three films that I've been talking about on this track, there really is nothing else. They are quite unique for that very reason. But then we get to this and again, it's a bait and switch. It wants you to think it's one thing and it goes entirely a different other way. To come back to the dance again, because we can't really overlook the dance, there's so much of the dance. But another reason why we have so much of this dance is provocation. Now, even 
Italy, who were well known to be completely perverse within the Gothic, and by this point we'd already, or by the time this is released, we'd already seen the release of the whip in the body, we'd already seen the release of the horrible Dr. Hitchcock, Hitchcock about a, a necrophile. Lots of it is suggested, but it's still a very transgressive, subversive film. The whip in the body, all about Sardian desire and female Sardian desire, which is just mind-blowing when you think about it. But we haven't really got to the stage where we're getting the full-on nudity and the more gratuitous aspects of of the Eurocult Gothic or the Eurocult Jallo that we would see within the 70s. We have to wait until the end of the Hays Code in 68 for that to start emerging. And at that point, everything starts to break down. Censorship all over the world starts to break down within horror film because obviously, in terms of Britain, in terms of Italy, they were also largely reliant on the export market to the US, which was huge because of the drive-in circuit. And a lot of these Italian Gothics were getting cut to pieces once they got to the US, which was supposedly the more modern and, and free country, which, is, which always makes me laugh when you think about it in those terms. But in terms of dance, when you think of dance and within the 50s, so not long before this was made, when rock and roll came along and people like Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley was seen as absolutely profane. Nowadays, he's just someone that your dad might have liked, you know. He's just like this curio from the olden days. Or if we look at the whole sort of rock and roll circuit as a culture, it just seems so tame. But during this period, even the very early 60s, dance was seen as very, very provocative, very sexual. And I think... Polselli, he really extenuates that. We've also now got a again a, a hinted at lesbian scene. We've got all this jealousy in here. It goes back to what I was saying about the the love aspects as well, the the more melodramatic romantic aspects. So you've got this idea that these women are having a romantic relationship. There's jealousy in there. They're looking at, at other women. Also, I haven't mentioned that, look at the cast, they're, they're barely dressed, so the film doesn't need nudity in that way. It gets as nude as it can. But then you get this very, very understated scene, lesbian scene, that is absolutely chocked full of sexual tension in the body language, in the suggestion, and it's played off slightly ambiguously but it's not all that ambiguous. And so when you take all this together and you look at the music and the dance and the costumes and moments like this, and I said, you know, in terms of horror tension, no, not a lot of horror tension, but sexual tension, absolutely loads. It puts Polselli again in line with those filmmakers like Jess Franco, like John Roland, like Jose Larraz, who, for them you had this mixture of sex and horror and not just sex and horror but eroticism and horror. Polselli doesn't really need nudity and he doesn't really need graphic lesbianism to make his film for the era quite profane. 
you know, quite subversive to be dealing in in this sort of stuff. Even the dances would have been considered sexually provocative again for the time. I mean, even dancing like that in the 70s was seen as sexually provocative. My dad, I know this is a British reference, not to go on too much of a diversion, but he always used to, there used to be this all-female dancing troupe that would appear on British TV called Pan's People. My dad lived for Pan's People in the 1970s. So to put this into horror at a time when you're not really seeing that all that much sexuality, and I'm saying at a time because, again, I'm talking about when this was initially produced, we're not seeing all that much sexual provocation. Not in that way, anyway. You've got, like, Vadim's Blood and Roses in 1960, and I mentioned that earlier, earlier on. That was a provocation because you get the first sort of on-screen lesbian kiss within a quote-unquote horror film, and it's, it's more of a peck. But again, that was all about suggestion, really, rather than graphic content. And that was a scandal. And you take a film like this where you've got women just writhing around in tiny little togas that have hardly got any hemline to speak of. And you just think, whoa, this, this was really challenging for its day. It was really challenging for its day in, in what seems like a quiet way now. We're two-thirds in into the film, so really this is the start of the third and final act, and we finally see Stefano, the vampire, who is introduced here in the more Christopher Lee, Bram Stoker way, played by Giuseppe Adobati, who I said most of the cast here have been associated with other, other genres or, or were unknowns, I still haven't had a chance to catch Milena Vukatic, which I will when when I can get to her when she stays on the the screen long enough. But I did want to to mention that Giuseppe there, he was from this point onwards, he'd been in like a lot of peplum, he'd even worked with Fellini at this point, but then would turn up in a handful of genre films like Kill Baby Kill, had a very small role in that. He was in Nightmare Castle, one of the Barbara Steele vehicles as well. He worked with Fulci in Perversion Story or one on top of the other. So he did have a, a small presence within genre, but then he also worked with people like Bertolucci in The Conformist, usually within these smaller roles, though. When it comes to this these two scenes in particular you really do get this riffing on Bram Stoker's Dracula the elegant stranger or the elegant aristocrat who is able to bring women under his spell and has this sort of magnetic sexual magnetism for want of a better word who is able to manipulate women and is the the all-out sexual predator and so he appears he's official and i love this you know this is this is the one bit of conventional vampire law they throw in oh my god he doesn't have a reflection but nobody's going to believe her because they're going to think she's hysterical but 
it sets it up to be again a film of a type it sets you up with the expectation of the kind of things that people were seeing coming from horror of dracula it sets you up with this expectation that we're going down bram stoker's road and this was for british gothic at least the dominant model for a long long time for universal although they made the sequel dracula's daughter which was also the modern set or contemporary set one as well not victoriana but it's setting setting it up to be in this very again masculine tradition and then the reveal is that this guy is actually quite pathetic he's not the predator at all there's this whole backstory of how he's been tormented by this woman he is essentially the barbara Steele character in black sunday cursed to come back <laughs> to now to sort of wreak his revenge and i think it's absolutely wonderful i think it's a wonderful twist the theater is well this idea of horror films in theaters I, I just think it's a, a great conceit. It's a wonderful framework. I think it should be used more. We see it used far more though within like the Jallo in this in the slasher. So for example, Pete Walker's The Flesh and Blood show. It takes place around an old abandoned theatre within that was in the early seventies. That was one of his very early genre films. But that's body count by numbers. You've got the most famous within the Italian lot is all the two that are the most famous, uh, Lamberto Bava's Demons, which has a supernatural thing, but these people are locked into this theater so they can't escape. Just like the people here are locked into the theater, they can't escape. And Michele Suave's, a little bit later on, Stage Fright from 1987, which is a bit of a slasher jallo hybrid and we're seeing the traditional dracula seduction thing here the woman unable to resist and getting the bite on the neck it really is exploiting that idea of hammer just to then throw you a curveball but to come back to this idea of the theater quickly we also had a jallo called the killer reserve nine seats in 1974 which has supernatural undertones very much a gothic jallo where a group of people play 10 little indians although they're trapped inside an old theater and it even comes up in another jallo the killer is on the phone starring telly savalis there's a really good scene in that one i mean if you think of suspiria that's all set around the ballet and ballet schools but bringing in this aspect of performance and then these older traditions these old buildings the costumes the props you know, I just think it's a perfect way to do contemporary gothic and I'm surprised it's not been exploited more. I haven't given an exhaustive list on films that do this. There are plenty of others set around the theatre and of course Phantom of the Opera being the biggest, although that's not really been exploited that much in, in terms of cinema. But I think... In a, in a purely gothic sense, it is a great setting because you've got all these archaic things, you've got this sense of history. Obviously, it was appealing for 
Italian producers, although they didn't do all that many because they did have a lot of these old decaying theatres that they could use, just that they had a lot of old decaying villas and decaying mansions and castles that they could just pick on. I think that's one advantage that they had over the British, for example, who had to rely largely on sound stages, was they'd often have these very baroque, very interesting locations to start with. But using the theatre as well, and then you get these people packed in, and they're actors, so they're all a, all a bit narcissistic, they're all a bit over the top anyway. And I think as this film shows, it can it can go in so many different avenues. It can be exploited in so many different ways. And then you've got the idea of performance as well. These sort of performances within the film, these artificial performances, but the idea of looking and seeing. And we're going to see that taken to an extreme height in a little bit later on, combined with the aspect of dance in this more ritualistic way and i do want to talk about that when we get to that scene but places like this it is completely if you want to do a contemporary gothic and you don't really have the money to do period gothic you set it somewhere like this with all these props it makes it perfectly feasible to be almost a period gothic without having to go through the the budgetary efforts to make it a truly period gothic where you have to alter everything you can stick a bunch of everyday people in everyday clothes into a gothic setting all the different little rooms and the little corridors and everything in this place as well makes it very much like bluebeard's castle and and bluebeard the fairy tale by charles perrault is something that underpin a lot of female-centric gothic. So even gothic that's not necessarily horror, but the uh, gothic melodrama, the gothic romance, which we saw a lot of in 40s Hollywood, a lot of them based on this idea of Bluebeard and the opening of, of rooms and the heroine at the centre of it. And so there is an exploitation of these things in here we automatically assume that julia is the innocent just for paul sally to then flip that around by the end and make it much more about the catholic feminine the savage feminine the femme fatale and all of these things old stefano there this kind of bitter incelish ish ish vampire Revenge is such a key part of the Italian Gothic, though. There's quite often this theme of revenge coming back to wreak havoc. And again, this goes back to Black Sunday. But here we have a masculine role for that Barbara Steele type. I do want to come back to this notion of revenge in a minute in the following scene, because it becomes even more relevant as the story opens up and we get these flashbacks. But the last thing I want to talk about to do with theatres is how this theatrical space with all the props and all these little details and the weird costumes and everything, it is perfect for evoking aspects of the uncanny. The uncanny in this rather Freudian sense of 
seeing the unfamiliar in the familiar. So theatres are great for having mannequins and masks and even puppets and automatons and paintings and backdrops with paintings on them. And it's so perfect for them to, to be there. It's like such a natural setting to bring in all this element of the uncanny. Like everything Paul said he did though, the way he interprets that uncanny, you do have a very, a very specific uncanny tradition within the Gothic, both literature and film. And it does always have this more Freudian aspect to it, whether that's obvious or not. But the way that Polselli relates to the uncanny is in a slightly perverse way. I don't know if it's just me, but that's how I respond to it. It's, it's always perverse in a certain sense, but it's just extra perverse when it comes to Polselli. There's something quite profane about it in certain respects as well, even though it's very subtle and it's very understated, which seems to be the maddest thing to say about Polselli, uh, understated or subtle. He certainly wasn't those things. But even this cavernous basement, which is just so overpopulated, he's gone so over the top with it. Look, we got the statue. Now, that's something the Italian Gothic like to use. If you look at something like Angel for Satan, for example, the statue is a perfect uncanny prop because it's not quite human. Mill of the Stone Women is another one that uses that. And of course, we see it in American horror as well with House of Wax. But when it comes into the Italian's hands, you know, like I said, there's something slightly perverse about this nude mannequin in the way that he looks at it. And the idea that it looks like Julia and it is all linked to this horrific past full of sexual jealousy and manipulation. It's not used ever in this straightforward way. Which brings us back to this aspect of revenge. And I don't know, again, why the Italians seem so drawn to the notion of revenge, but it is a recurring theme, especially within their classic Gothic period. But then we get to the giallo. And if you look at the motivations for giallo killers, quite a lot of revenge in there as well. I do want to stop a minute and comment on this because I see the same avant-garde sexual anarchy in this scene with the brides in the basement, this story of how he feeds on them, he, he keeps them there chained up, but also they're these very libidinal, sexual, chaotic creatures. And I see a lot of parallel between this setting, specifically in the work of Coffin Joe. This scene could come from a, from a, a Marion's film, if you look at it. The way these women are, this more sadistic element of it, but the way they are very, very much uh, just in this, this state of almost like sexual frustration and bloodlust, oh, it's just perfect. So we get to how this revenge starts and we find out that Stefano, he was a good lad at one point, but he's been twisted by this woman who tricked him. And then to add insult to injury, he died a horrific death. Now this is so out of the park from where we usually see the male vampire. 
Hammer did essentially turn, I guess, their their Dracula franchise into something of a long-running revenge thing. And you often saw it creeping into their Frankenstein line as well. But Dracula especially would be resurrected in later installments with this more vengeful, angry type of persona. Christopher Lee wouldn't return until 66 with Dracula Prince of Darkness. So if we look at the initial one, Horror of Dracula, 1958, that film is much more true to the Bram Stoker model in that we have the typical Dracula figure and he comes from Transylvania. He becomes obsessed with Mina Harker and Jonathan Harker. And he causes chaos in the present world. He's manipulative. He's this insidious predatory force that erupts into the then present when Bram Stoker wrote it. And if you look at the more classic male Dracula based or what I call Bram Stoker model vampire films, this is pretty much the convention. Now here, Pulsetti has completely abandoned that idea. And what he's made it is that we essentially have someone who's twisted, someone who has been turned into a monster by what? Pure spite. He's able to erupt into the present time, but it's all about getting revenge on this woman that hurt him and the fact that she may be reincarnated. Now, the Italians did use this tradition of revenge in this way. And they had, if you look at a film like Lady Morgan's Vengeance, for example, that's more romantic, it's got this very tragic angle. And the only other place that was doing that in horror was ironically, and I say ironically because there's no traditional a canon of gothic there culturally like we have a western literary tradition but is in japan and also in some classic korean horror as well where if you look at the classic period of say j horror almost every single story is about female ghosts or monsters to women that have turned into cats or vengeful spirits there's like a whole genre of ghost cat films for example to come back and right some wrong. And we don't really see that in a Western tradition because if we look at Japanese horror, it comes from a more folkloric base. It comes from this oral tradition of telling stories or kaidan as they call them, that then translated into kabuki theater. And so it has this much longer, this longevity in culture that goes right back to the 1600s or even before and historians have speculated about this and a lot of these stories came from China before so there's this whole thing this whole different track when you look at Asian horror where it is telling these old stories like fairy tales folklore tales about revenge and the the notion of the ghost or the monstrous spirit or the evil spirit or demonic spirit has a, a much more nuanced approach. It is all about, I mean, our ghosts have the quote-unquote unfinished business, but 
this is different. It's often more tragic, more romantic, and we don't really see that translated into our canon of Gothic, which was purely literary, starts at the end of the 1700s, peaks within the 1800s. And that really was much more of an intellectual thing. It was much more a comment on Christianity, on what was happening in society. And so when it, we look at more English-speaking Gothic and the stuff that came out of England, America, it is very much invested in that more solid literary foundation that, that you saw boom within the 1800s. It is very much in that spirit both stylistically, it's also got this very formal element to it, but also those stories are kept very much in that, that realm of good versus evil and very much within specific conventions, especially when it comes to the vampire film. That started to change in the 70s. I'm not saying it was always that, but it was mostly that. Now, you look at a film like this and it's like some other Italian Gothic films that focus on revenge, there seems to be a shared cosmic energy with the, the nature of these stories, the construction of these stories, and what was happening in Japanese and also South Korean horror film at the time, where it's much more about revenge, it often has this more romantic line to it or this tragic line to it. And even though Stefano has become this very monstrous entity, we get this scene where it's explained. And so it opens us up to the idea of the chthonic feminine. This woman who wasn't actually a monster, she wasn't actually a vampire, but she was almost like a literal vampire in a way because she has that spirit of the femme fatale the draining this man of his life manipulation and, and all that stuff so i find that aspect really fascinating the way that and Pulsetti would do this so much he would go off script and i think once you've got to a point where where you invest so much in gothic cinema in gothic literature to me anyway it's always it's always a treat to find something that goes off script. I love to see Gothic interpreted in these very different ways. And of course I've been talking about scripts and going off scripts and I haven't really talked about the collaboration between Polselli and Ernesto Gastaldi on the script for this. I will get to that shortly. But this scene. Now this scene of the dancing was apparently one of the initial thoughts that Pulselli had one of the one of the scenes that he saw in his head when he started to think about what he'd do with this film. So it, it was an it was integral to how the film was built, according to Pulselli anyway. But this dancing, and we've seen lots of dancing, sexually provocative dancing, avant-garde dancing, but here this dance has a purpose. Now, they have to keep dancing because if they stop, Stefano can kill them. Now, this totally breaks 
vampire folklore, right? It totally breaks the mould on that. But it does have, weirdly, a, a, I guess a parallel or, or some grounding in Italian occult tradition, which was the first thing that, that came to my mind when thinking about this scene. And that was the, the Tarantella, which was this, this medieval plague where women, peasant women were supposedly, and this was, this was specifically in southern Italy, peasant women were supposedly bitten by this tarantula or the tarantola and they would go mad and it would happen as mass hysteria with this very ritualized demented dancing this didn't really register so much in italian film outside of il demonia but you did have this writer ernesto di martino who wrote a lot of books he was an anthropologist and in the 50s, he wrote a lot of books about the Italian occult tradition, how that connected to then Christianity, talked about pagan ritual, all this stuff. And Il Demonio was very much based on or inspired by his work. But the, the Tarantella, this demented, writhing dancing as part of a curse, might seem totally random in in if taken again in this more british or american tradition of gothic and yet within an italian tradition what it does is it brings in this wonderful folkloric uh, occult elements that might not be immediately obvious to somebody outside of that culture and i've seen this scene read as completely random and demented you also see it appear in flavia the heretic as well as a similar part to Flavia which was much later on obviously that's an exploitation it's also partially rape revenge very political film and arguably a feminist film as well so you see it used in that you see it used in Il Demonio on on a, a smaller scale but this was made before Il Demonio Il Demonio was 63 so I just find this aspect because you know, it's, it's, it, it brings in something that is very obviously specifically Italian. And just how demented it is. We also see something similar in Ken Russell's The Devils later on. Although, admittedly, we don't get anybody trying to fornicate with the statue of Christ in this. And that's kind of sad. But, but it does have this horrific aspect to it as well people driven to dance this is their great love they love to dance but now they're forced to dance for their lives and they're just forced to do it and so it has this more occult aspect to it and as i'm somebody who loves the occult in in film in culture just in general i adore this part of it Polselli worked on this with screenwriter ernesto gastaldi who had his start within the Gothic and indeed in writing under his own name as a screenwriter with Paul Selly's The Vampire and The Ballerina. But I find talking of fascinating, and I say fascinating a lot because it is genuinely fascinating, Gastaldi as a screenwriter, even when he had minimal influence on a script, he somehow managed to establish a very singular brand of gothic 
Now, I don't know how far Polselli had an influence on this, but they both seem to have a shared interest in the Sardian, in the Sard, or, or bringing elements of the Sardian into the Gothic. And Gastaudi, I think, because obviously I wrote a book on Sergio Martino, and he worked very closely with both Martino brothers, Luciano and Sergio, has given me the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to study Gastaudi's work as well. To me, within the Gothic, he is one of the most outstanding, singular and perverse presences to have made his mark on, on the genre overall. And then that repeated within the giallo. And within the giallo, it's the same thing. It was this emphasis on the Sardian. So you see Gastaudi, and that's not all he wrote. I mean, such a prolific scriptwriter over so many decades. So he wrote things like just Sword and Sand or, or war films or Peplum or, or Western. You know, he's very much a job in writer. But when it comes to the Gothic especially, what you get is this huge emphasis on the Catholic feminine on this more savage and dangerous and perverse type of feminine, but also these very nuanced perceptions on women's sexuality. Take, for example, so he, he works with Polselli on The Vampire and the Ballerina in 1960. He does Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory as well. Works on this, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't come out until later on. But then we get to 62, the terror of Dr. Hitchcock. I mean, necrophilia, kink, bizarre, mummy Freudian themes in that through the, the presence of the maid. You've got the typical gothic melodramatic gaslighting plot in that, rendered utterly perverse. Then you get to 1963, and he follows that up with The Whip in the Body for Barva, which is a film that's consistently misread by a lot of male critics, I would argue, because I've seen a lot written about it in terms of you know, Dahlia Lavi, this perfect gothic maiden who has this affair with a very sadistic, uh, dominating Christopher Lee, and then gets tormented by the ghost of that man. But it's not about that. That is not what it's about. It is about a woman's sexual fantasy her love of kink and this very very sardian nature people often read de Sard as misogynistic and yet angela carter when she wrote sardian women at the end of the 70s argued this wasn't the case because what he did was he argued for women to have their own sexuality to have that same freedom that men had in a way and so there's a shared energy in that throughout a lot of Gastaldi's films that he wrote, but also in his own, Libido or Libido, which he made in, in 65 within the Gothic. Again, very strange, more of an outsider thing. But he also did something more, I'd argue, traditional, well, traditional for Itali within an Italian tradition, The Long Hair of Death, which was one of the Barbara Steele vehicles. But when you look at when he gets to the Jallo, for example, it's, it is still this same 
influence on on the psychosexual on the sardian you've got films like the sweet body of deborah so sweet so perverse in 1969 absolutely wonderful all about sexual coercion and manipulation so much of a subversion of the the gothic fueled with all this sardian flavor it's just absolutely wonderful the forbidden photos of a lady above suspicion so much kink in that film but then you get to the grand opus the strange vice of mrs ward in 1971, which he did obviously with the Martino brothers. It's just so wonderful. All the colours of the dark, just so wonderful. And so I've talked so much about Polselli and Polselli's world, but I really did also need to touch on uh, Gastaldi's influence or potential influence on this. Because even though he's establishing at this period, it becomes thematic within his work. And we often talk about the director as the auteur or the visionary, and, and Polselli certainly was. But Gastaldi had so much influence on, on parts of genre and parts of the Gothic and on parts of, of Jallo later on. Always with this focus on the Sardian, always. And you see it here. So this is important, I guess, as a stepping stone to that, to him formulating that. A year later, he gets to Hitchcock, which is an obscene film, a beautifully obscene film. We have here this final flip where you almost have a Dorian Gray situation going on. Kill the painting, kill the monster. But I love how he's fighting with that massive pitchfork, and he did kill that girl with that massive pitchfork. Because it's often the villagers coming for the vampire with the pitchfork. And, and here it's vampire with pitchfork and a good old fist fight and the women with torches but they're running away <laughs> there's just so much chaos here getting to the very end now but to me to talk about Paul is an absolute joy I think it was an absolute joy for the gothic even like teeming with Gastaldi it's like this perfect coming together of people who understand the gothic and even the literary gothic is essentially very perverse, even if that's not specific. It's all about sex. All of it is about sex and about sin and about perversion. And there is this, even in something like Dracula, which is far more formal, it still has a Sardian element to it. Even Christopher Lee's incarnation of Dracula had a Sardian element to it, this sort of dangerous uh, love of cruelty and almost like a spite, but very, very sexual. And you get to someone like Polselli and he joins with Gastaldi and you get this beautiful coming together to make all the perverse, all, all, all the perverse. And, you know, but this is kind of weird how, how they finish him off now, just so scared of the torches. I think this is the closest it gets to quote-unquote normal vampire law the closest that it gets to that but outside of that as we've seen over the last hour and nearly an hour and a half uh, nothing about this film is typical and I think it needs to be utterly appreciated for that again I'm not expecting everyone to agree with me on that and that's absolutely fine but to me, we need all the Polselli. It's time. It's time to start celebrating what a unique force he was. 
both within and outside of the Gothic, how imaginative he was, how out there these films were for the time. We're nearly at the end, but quick shout out to Milena Vukatic, who plays Carlotta. He's not on the screen at the moment, but I can't let this track go without mentioning her because I love her. Work with everyone from Bunuel to Fellini to the Martinos and their sex comedies. Just legend. We won't see her again, but I had to mention her. Also wanted to note that this is apparently the same skeleton, real skeleton, that Paul Selly got for the vampire and the ballerina. He was very proud of that, that they actually had a human skeleton. But there is a sort of tragic part to this, a game which denies lovers of the more formal or, or more conventional that catharsis of good defeats evil because there's, a, there's sadness to that and this little rose at the end is quite romantic. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this commentary.